You're listening to Let's Talk Creation with Todd Wood and Paul Garner, the creation show where we learn, grow, and worship. Well, hello, guys. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I'm Paul Garner. And I'm Todd Wood. Uh, Don't forget to uh, hit the subscription uh, button, uh, hit the notification bell so that you get uh, news of all our latest episodes um, and do like and share our episodes. Um, we're, we're very grateful to all of you who, who do that. So, Todd, uh, today we are beginning a brand new series. Uh-oh. As if we, as if we don't as have as enough series. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we've got a number of series running. Uh, but this series, um, we kind of wanted to go back to basics. I think recently we've done a lot of quite technical episodes, quite heavy episodes, where yeah. we've been looking at all of the numbers in the genealogies, and we've been looking at helium diffusion and you know lots of technical stuff. And what we didn't want to do is is sort of lose some of our viewers and listeners, um, you know, who might get sort of bogged down in some some of the technical detail. Uh, so. We thought that it would be good to to do a series uh, beginning this year where we sort of cover some basic concepts in uh, creationism. Um, you know, we we want to make sure there's something in our podcast for everyone, whether whether you're uh, an old hand in creationism who likes to dig right. into all of the, those details, or whether you're uh, sort of a newbie who's just trying to get to grips with some of some of the sort of basic information. Um, we want you to be able to find something valuable in what in what we're doing. So we want to go back to to look at some of these basic concepts in creationism. And we thought, you know, a good place to begin would be to go back to Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and uh, work through those chapters together and talk about some of the issues that arise from those chapters that are of concern to, to us as creationists. And, you know, we, we'll, along the way, add our own observations and thoughts as well. So that's what we're going to do. And our first subject, uh, perhaps the most fundamental of all, is this. We thought we would address the question, why do we read Genesis the way that we do? Uh, yeah, yeah, this is a very sort of foundational question. Why do we read Genesis the way that we do? Todd, uh, kick us off with with this. Yeah. So, yeah, if we're going to go through Genesis 1 through 11, I'm talking about how we read this and how we read that. And what do we think about these words? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. We ought to spend at least the very first episode thinking about, well, what are we looking at here and how do we know how to read it? More specifically, I suppose. Why do we as creationists think that we ought to read it the way that we do? Mm. And specifically, um, why do we think that why do we think that we need to read it as like a realistic depiction of some sort of events that took place in real history? Um, and that, turns out to be a really complicated question and we have to start somewhere so paul i thought the easiest thing for us to do would be to start from the christian conviction that this is that the bible is the word of god it's not just any old book and that the bible is accurate and true Um, some people would say it's inerrant. Other people might use the word infallible. Uh, and there are various ways of understanding those doctrines. But I'm just going to come at it with the idea that it has, when it speaks, it has the authority of God. And it's going to be true, ultimately, in what it says. And I know that if you're a uh, audience member who thinks, well, you've already failed because you haven't justified that. That's true. We haven't justified it. I don't know if that makes us failures, but we haven't justified it. This is not let's talk uh, apologetics or let's talk fundamental um, <laughs> fundamental assumptions of epistemology or whatever. Um, 
those are important issues, but we're kind of getting off into much farther away from our purpose. Our purpose is to talk creation. So we'll stick to that. How about that? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so we come to the Bible and we read the Bible as, as young age creationists and, and, and we think that it's referring to historical things. Now, most people, I would say, would say that, you know, you come to the Bible and you read, love your neighbor, and you should just do that, right? And you know the story there of, of the, of the Jesus talking about love your neighbor is the greatest commandment. And the first question that he got was, well, who is my neighbor, right? It's an interpretive question. And his response is pretty condemning. It's basically anybody who needs your help is your neighbor, and you better help them. Um, and he does that through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, so, yeah, interpretation. So Jesus is basically saying, stop trying to read too much into this and just do what I tell you. Um, and so there's this, I think, attitude that creationists are at, at the core literalists and a literalist always takes everything they read perfectly literally right that's that's the gag that where you we don't understand figures of speech we don't understand genre we don't understand metaphors or similes or anything like that all we understand is the meaning of the word and that's how you should take the bible that's that's normative that is the appropriate thing to do when you read the Bible. And so you get people, you get people criticizing us. Well, you don't, you don't follow all the Old Testament laws, right? You don't, you don't treat uh, women as unclean after they've had babies. You don't, you don't, um, you don't keep kosher food laws. You don't, uh, you eat bacon and pork. Um, so you're obviously a hypocrite or they'll, they'll pull out the really, the really extreme ones like in Deuteronomy 21, where it, where it says, uh, verse 18 to 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey, all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Um, well, you, you don't, you don't, you don't stone your little kid, uh, to death when they don't do what you tell them to. So you're a hypocrite. Um. And I just find that to be just mind-bogglingly dumb. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're not doing those things. Obviously, Christians in general, even Christians who don't read the Bible, read Genesis the way we do, but still think the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, they're still not doing those things, right? So the question shouldn't be, that we're hypocrites because we're not conforming to your inane idea of what literalism is. But the question should be, well, what is it that you're, what, how do you read the Bible such that you think you don't have to do these sorts of things? And that just sort of brings up the reality that we creationists are not literalists in that weird, awkward, ham-fisted, sense of, of literalism. We don't read the Bible as if I have to follow every word and that every word applies to me equally to everyone else. It's, it's, there's all sorts of contextual issues to consider. And yes, Jesus did get annoyed with people who were trying to, trying to reinterpret what he was saying in some other way, right? But at the same time, when the Bible tells us, uh, like this, this whole issue of stoning disobedient children, when you read that in context, there's a whole long prescription there. It is not just that little Timmy didn't pick up his toys before dinner, like mommy told him, so daddy's going to have to take you out and stone you now. It's, it's far more complex than that. You have to take them in front of the village elders, who are the, basically the judges, right? And you have to say, well, this, this, this person is clearly being extremely, extremely out, out of the normal, terrible twos sort of rebellion. Um, and then the, the elders get to make the call about what you do with them. Um, and it's not a matter of just, <laughs> you don't just kill your kid because he didn't do what you told him to do. 
Anyway, yeah. So one of the biggest context issues, of course, is Old Covenant versus New Covenant, right? The Old Testament versus New Testament. Another big issue, of course, is the genre of the of the text. Are you looking at a piece of poetry? Are you looking at a, a piece of prophecy? Those things tend to have some pretty wild images in them that we can't even imagine them being um, correct <laughs> and in a literal sense, right? Trees don't have hands to clap. That's right out of the prophecy, right? So we, we know that, that there's something going on there other than just what is being said. Um, so yeah, so creationists absolutely do question, contextualize. But when we get to those first couple of chapters of Genesis, we can use all the literary tools that you want to sort of try to understand and decipher what's being said. But the stories tend to be pretty straightforward. Now, Paul, I know we on our own podcast here, we've 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 picked out some things that are not straightforward. We've done we've talked about the Nephilim, for example, a couple of times and try to figure out what in the world that's talking about. We've had this ongoing series about biblical chronology where we talked about different manuscript traditions and we're not sure which which one is correct, if you will. Um so there are these complicating issues. But at the same time, you know, you read the story of, of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's not hard to understand what that means. Um, you read the story of the flood also. Not difficult to understand what that means. Um, and there might be a maddening lack of detail <laughs> in some of these <laughs> stories. But they're not difficult to understand. And so in that sense, I tend to think, well, this... This is, I tend to read the Bible in a realistic way. If this is a narrative story that is not obviously a parable or not obviously uh, a figure of speech or something, I can rule out all of these particular metaphorical ways of understanding things. And I tend to think it's referring to something that really happened, right? Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed Jerusalem. Well, I think that really happened. Um, Jesus called his apostles on the shore of Galilee, some of his apostles on the shore of Galilee. Well, I think that really happened. and I don't really have any reason to think otherwise, then there you go. So, yeah, and of course, my attitude toward the Bible comes from, again, my Christian conviction about what it is, about the divine author of Scripture, that it's the inspired Word of God. I don't read the Bible like I would read Homer or Aristotle or Plato or something like that. I don't privilege those texts in any particular way. But when I'm dealing with God's word, then yeah, I absolutely do privilege it that way. So this is this is way beyond reading the Bible literally, um, way beyond that. And I know even as I carefully explain this, I've done it countless times now. And there is always going to be somebody who chimes in and says, so basically you just read the Bible literally. Uh, kill me now. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, no, we don't. And I'm sorry that you think that's what we do, but it's obvious that we don't do that. Yeah, it's it's frustrating and um, <laughs> maddening to, to kind of hear people just sort of dismiss you as often they'll say a naive literalist or a wooden literalist, you know, yeah. uh, as if you can't recognize, you know, that when Jesus says, I am the door. <laughs> He's, <laughs> he's not saying that know, I have literally a piece of wood with a yes, doorknob on me. <laughs> yes, um, uh, you know, and if and if we can understand that, then you know, obviously, you know, I suppose the implication is that then the whole of Genesis is just you know some kind of extended metaphor or figure of speech. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's it's frustrating, and so I I think it's a yeah it's a misguided um, criticism of of creationism. Uh, and there's more, I think, to to this, Todd, as well, because um, when we look at the Bible, when we look at the Scripture, it's it's not merely a collection of of random stories that are just kind of strung together. There's an overarching narrative. There's there's a story. There's a there's a big picture. Um, you know, the Bible is telling us about God and His relationship with the people that he created and his activity through history. And, uh, you know, if you, if you come to the new Testament, 
Uh, we read, obviously, there about Jesus coming, being sent into the world, uh, ultimately to die mm -hmm. uh, as our substitute, as, as punishment for our sins. Um, the verse that everybody remembers, because everybody memorizes it when they're, <laughs> when they're a child, for God so loved the world that uh, whosoever... Yeah, the, and, oh. Well, we do. <laughs> some of us memorize it. We do memorize it. Some of us memorize it, and then some of us start to say it and, and, and get it wrong. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish and have eternal life. And you know we 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 all we're all kind of come through Sunday school and we you know we we learn that and and that's that's the kind of pivotal point, isn't it, in the narrative where God sort of turns things around. It's it's the climax where where Jesus comes to to rescue us. And of course, if we then look to the end of the Bible, we have the Book of Revelation, and the Book of Revelation is telling us about the consummation. Uh, what's going to happen as a as a result of Jesus coming into the world and and rescuing us? Um, we learn there about future judgment and the fact that Christians are going to be uh, saved, reunited with Jesus. They're going to live forever with Him in a new heaven and a new earth. So we have you know the this sort of climactic um, narrative of redemption that then climaxes with with the Book of Revelation. But of course, that story, that overarching story, has a beginning. And that beginning has to set the scene. So yes. it has to answer some crucial questions, right? So it has to explain who we are. It has to explain where we came from, what our relationship is to God, what sin is, why are we estranged from God? You know, why, why, why are we now uh, alienated from our creator? It has, has to explain all of those, those things. So in that larger story of the whole Bible, the, this grand story of God's, you know, work among uh, human beings. Those earliest chapters of the Bible, Genesis one to eleven, are absolutely crucial because they set the scene. Uh, they answer those questions. They tell us that we're God's creation. They tell us that we rebelled against Him in the beginning. Uh, they tell us that we're under judgment because of our sin. And if we don't have that essential foundational knowledge, then we the grander story, the story of Jesus coming into the world to rescue us, kind of doesn't make sense. You know, it's much, much harder to understand what's going on. And I think in the New Testament, we see that the the New Testament authors understood this. They understood why this is so important because you see the Apostle Paul, for example, in uh, the letter to the Romans, Romans chapter five, for example, famously, uh, one Corinthians fifteen. Uh, we see Paul describing Jesus' work, his his person and work, in the context of those early chapters of Genesis. So we see Paul saying, well, look, you know, the reason Jesus had to die is because death came into the world through Adam. That's that's why he he came to to die. That story of Adam and Eve in the garden to Paul is not just some you know, nice story or disconnected from the overall narrative. It was it was that event, that rebellion in the garden, that then set in motion the whole story of salvation that then brings Jesus to, to the earth to die. Um, and so he says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 21 and 22, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, so this story to Paul is absolutely central to how he understands the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's how he explains it to his readers. And I think, you know, today we see um, some Bible scholars and theologians who um, want to reinterpret those early chapters of Genesis. They they want to say that maybe, you know, we don't actually know the details of why we're sinful, why Jesus had to come. Um, one of the things, for example, that they might point to is that in, in the Hebrew uh, language uh, of, used in Genesis, the word for Adam and the word for man are the same word. 
And so they might say, well, look, you know, this is really a kind of metaphorical story about the whole of mankind. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not about a specific individual in history. Adam is a kind of proxy for humanity generally. Uh, and and they may want to sort of, you know, interpret those early chapters that way. But I, I think the problem with that, one of the problems, is that they run into um, what Paul says in the New Testament, his insistence that Adam was a real individual who actually lived in history, you know, who had a place in space and time. Um, and uh, in for Paul, who was writing in Greek, the word man and the word Adam are actually two different words, and he's very insistent that Adam was an individual, that it was through one man sin came into the world. And just as through one man sin came into the world, through one man uh, eternal life has 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 come 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 to us. Um so I think you know Paul is kind of placing this story of what Jesus did in that big narrative, that big picture. And of course our personal story intersects with that big story. But this story is much bigger than just me and Jesus. It's much bigger than just my personal salvation. Yeah. It's that story of the whole of humanity and what happened uh, through history, how God has worked through history. And so I think when we consider that sort of big overarching story, um, and I'm talking now as the church, we, we have to, we have to realize how important these early stories are in Genesis to making sense of the theology of the rest of the Bible. Um, of course, there are going to be people who become Christians who don't have all, all of this worked out, you know, who, who maybe, you know, don't have a sophisticated theology or perhaps disagree with us about, you know, the, the early chapters of Genesis. But I think collectively as a church, if we want to really understand and to be able to explain the theology of the Bible, then those early chapters of Genesis are absolutely, well, I was going to say important, but they're, they're essential. They're, they're absolutely essential. They're indispensable in understanding that big story. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, that, to me, is a massive motivation for why I hold the position I do. So. It's one thing to say, well, you've got to read it this way or you've got to read it that way. But when you realize that how you read it intersects with the entire story of Christian faith, <laughs> of, of the actual narrative of the Bible as a whole, this notion of creation and fall and then redemption and glory, half of that is is Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, so it's, it's, it's massive. It's massive in terms of our identity, who we are as Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? Um, and yeah, I think, you know, as we try to sort of, as, as some Christian scholars try to reimagine what that, what that, what that's supposed to mean, if it doesn't mean what it says, um, yeah, you come away with a theology that's, that's sort of unhinged from our historical understanding, uh, the, the mm. church's historical understanding. Now, at the same time, as I agree with the big picture, I also notice the fine details, right? So even if I were to say, let's, let's just say, let's say for the sake of argument, we're not necessarily going to read everything uh, in Genesis 1 through 11 as a factual account of something that happened. Let's pretend that that's not on the table. And, and let's ask ourselves, all right, well, are there things about our theological understanding of the Old Testament that would lead us to say, well, this particular detail of Genesis is probably real? Um, mm -hmm. So in other words, is there some sort of theological stake in the way we read Genesis? Is it not just a matter of you should read it this way, but if you don't read it this way, this is what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. um, and you've mentioned already the historical Adam. 
And that's good. That gets us a guy named Adam. That gets us an early sin uh, that messes things up and brings death. Um, but there's more, I think. I think there's more to be done uh, in this regard. So another example that I can think of, in, in Matthew 19, um, Jesus is questioned about uh, the, per, the permissibleness of, of divorce. Is it okay to divorce someone for any reason? And let me, let me say right now, at the outset here, um, Jesus knows there are good reasons for divorce. Jesus knows that we live in a sinful, awful world um, where one spouse or maybe both spouses can go off the rails and become a danger in the household. And so, uh, yeah, this is not a blanket uh, condemnation of divorce in general. Um, and I think maybe sometimes evangelical culture gets too obsessed with the notion that divorce is the ultimate evil. Um, the ultimate evil is destroying a marriage, and divorce sometimes is just a piece of paper that says that that's already happened. But not that that's laying that aside for a moment here, when, when he explains why you can't just divorce for any reason, Jesus quotes from both Genesis 1, God made them male and female, and Genesis 2, what God has put together, let no man take us under. Um, so in that regard, Jesus is basically saying, yeah, we have to remember where marriage came from to understand why divorce is something that we ought to work very hard to avoid in our relationships. And understand here that that's not merely an analogy, right? He's not just making this as uh, an analogy, an analogous argument. Um, Paul, if I were to justify some moral stance by quoting, I don't know, Star Trek or something like that, um, that doesn't have a lot of moral weight. If I you said that you can go ahead and get married in secret because Romeo and Juliet did it, that's not really, not a compelling moral point, right? So. Jesus' statement here kind of depends on the Pharisees and his critics at the time understanding that he's referring to something that happened. And the fact that they don't really challenge him on this, uh, at least in the immediate context, tells me that they understood exactly what he was saying, and they understood the power of what he was saying. That, oh yeah, well, if God made it that way, then yeah, we shouldn't be just tearing it apart for whatever reason. Um. And so, yeah, so there we have details of the creation of human beings from Genesis 1-2 that seem to be really important for the way Jesus understands what marriage is all about and how we ought to treat it as something important and not destroy it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's one of those examples of where I can see something yeah. in the New Testament that sort of brings in details of the Old Testament in a way that you sort of have to say, yeah, that's that's probably yeah. true in that historical It really sense. happened. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we see lots of examples of this. Uh, you know, another one that I can, I can think of um, is Peter, you know, in his uh, letters in the New Testament where he speaks about Noah and the flood. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, um, he talks about Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison. This is after Jesus' death. Yep. Um, and he says that these spirits formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, in many ways, that's a quite mysterious sort <laughs> yeah. of passage um, because uh, we we don't. It's not clear, at least from the, from this text, exactly who these spirits were. Um, we we don't know 
where they're imprisoned or how or why. You know, this is this is all. There's been lots of discussion about that, um, but nevertheless, you know, he's setting it in the context of something that is related to the flood, and he talks about these details of the flood. Uh, you know, these eight people who were who were saved, who were brought safely through the water, and uh, and of course, he's also talking about Jesus' death, something that he was. Yeah, his his death and t- then his subsequent resurrection. He he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to the to these things. He's talking about something that really happened, yeah. and he talks about this. You know what happened after Jesus died and before his resurrection when he was preaching to these these spirits in prison. What whatever that means, um, but it it's rooted in something that actually happened. Something something real. Um, and he he does the same in his second letter in two Peter chapter two. Uh, there's an interesting um, uh, statement that Peter makes where he's sort of giving his readers you know reasons why they can trust God to carry them through the coming judgment. And he says that if God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then God can take care of us as well. Um, and again, you know, we've got to think how Peter is framing this for his readers because, you know, yes, it's an analogy, but it, it's a historical analogy. It kind of only works if the historical reality happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be very, um, uh, very comforted if I said, well, you know, Todd, you're you're going through difficult times, but we know that Doctor Who, uh, yeah, my favourite program, we, we we know that Doctor Who always always comes to the rescue and 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 helps you know helps all those uh, people. You know, he always does that, and so you can take great comfort in this. How much comfort is that actually going to be to you? To to not much, you know, yeah. if you're referring to just some fictional example. Um, what you would draw comfort from is if I told you about something real, if I reminded you of how God had truly helped people in the past, that, that would, that would comfort you and be, be of um, assurance to you. Um, so, yeah, so it just looks like Peter is assuming that these things really happened, that they're true. And he's using them then to, Give lessons to yeah. to his readers and to and to give that bring them comfort that God is going to carry them through. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, if you told me Doctor Who is going to come and save me from my problems, I would start <laughs> thinking you've you've watched a little too much television there. Yes, I've lost <laughs> really it. Need to turn the telly off and uh, <laughs> go back to reality. So yeah, it, you're right. Then that the implication then is that Peter there, the uh, writing um, is is absolutely depending on not only our shared understanding of these stories of Genesis, but the reality that they actually happen. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. those kinds of statements just they just come across as completely cuckoo instead of actually comforting and helpful. Um, so yeah. we've got uh, Jesus referring to the creation of, of humans and the creation of marriage. So that's good. We have Paul talking about the first uh, Adam as the source of the problem that we have that Jesus came to fix. We have Peter here referring to events surrounding the one the flood, very specifically to the, the eight people saved in the ark. Um, he's very specific about these details. So now I have another example here. This one I just realized the other day. I'm actually kind of excited to share this because never really talked much about this. But uh, in Matthew 23 and in Luke 11, so this is one of those common synoptic passages here. Uh, he's he's Jesus is condemning uh, the religious leaders of his day, and um, he says that God sent them prophets and apostles that the Pharisees will persecute and kill. And then he says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world uh, may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So that's an 
interesting idea here. Um, and what occurred to me was, well, how can I be held accountable for the murder of someone who never actually existed? Um, it's, it's one thing, and, and obviously there's some really sophisticated, I'm not quite sure if it's analogy or, or something going on here, where Jesus is basically taking all of these, this sinful activity of people against the prophets of God and putting it on the generation there that's rejecting him directly. I don't really understand all that is, but even if this was some kind of hyperbole, you don't want to use a hyperbole that's basically fake, right? Because the instant retort of the Pharisees would have been, well, Abel isn't a real person, Jesus, so why are you charging his death to us? That's crazy. You're just crazy, yeah. right? The only way yeah. that, that that statement, even if it is some kind of strange figure of speech or something, the only way that statement has force is if Abel was a real person who got murdered. Um, so, yeah. yeah, if you're going to charge someone with someone's death, that person had to have existed and had to have been murdered. Um, so that gives us yeah. that gives us creation, that gives us the flood, that gives us the Cain and Abel account. Um, yeah. And they all are attested in the New Testament in ways that make us think these things must have actually happened. And the way the New Testament authors are describing them sort of leaves us in this kind of bind to say, well, yeah, I mean, if I think this isn't real, then this guy is really off the wall. So they must, yeah. these things must have actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think we haven't exhausted this no. because there are, there are lots of, lots of other references that we could, we could think of. Um, uh Paul in in 1 Timothy chapter 2 um where he's he's talking about the the roles of men and women and uh, leaving aside whatever his teaching is on yes, that yes. for the moment um you know enough controversy to deal with just dealing with creation and evolution <laughs> um but it is interesting that he grounds that teaching in historical details that come from from the book of Genesis so he talks about um Adam having been formed first yep. and then Eve he talks about Eve being the one who's deceived by the serpent obviously yeah um and, and he and he he uses those you know historical realities to then um to then lead him to uh, teach about men and women so you know it, it it's not just that Paul is assuming the historical reality of these things, but he's then building teaching. He's building doctrines yes. on, on this historical reality. And of course, as we've already said, you know, he most uh, supremely, if you like, um, you know, he does it when it comes to Jesus himself. You know, you know what what Jesus came to do. Uh, there are other references. John, um, one John chapter three and verse twelve talks about uh, Cain having killed his brother. Um, because his works were evil. Uh, we have Jesus uh, in a couple of passages in, in Luke 17 and Matthew 24, uh, like Peter also talking about the flood mm -hmm. um, and particularly talking about the sudden onset of the flood, the, the way in which the flood was unexpected, that people were going about their everyday lives and then the flood came and swept them away. And, uh, you know, talking about this as a picture of what final judgment is going to be like, that people are just going to be going about their everyday lives and then, you know, judgment will suddenly, suddenly come. Uh, and then, of course, we've got that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews mm. chapter 11, uh, where the author of uh, Hebrews um, draws our attention to all of these great Old Testament sort of heroes of the faith and the amazing things that they did for God, the way that they placed their trust in God. And of course, included in that passage are characters like Cain and Abel and Enoch, who was translated into the presence of God and Noah and the ark. And, you know, as well as characters like Abraham, who, yeah. you know, we think we all agree are historical 
Um, and I'm sure there are lots of others, you know, that we could we could find if we began to sort of dig our way th- sort of through the New Testament. So, yeah. So, you know, if we accept the New Testament as we do, as the true um, testimony of the apostles of of Jesus, uh, we've got to grapple, haven't we, with the fact that they rely on these stories in the book of Genesis as real accounts of things that actually happened, characters that were real individuals in history. And it's very hard to see how we can just sort of shrug this off as just the cultural context of the first century, you know, that these were just people, these were men of their times who were just sort of drawing on cultural tropes that were familiar to their readers because i don't think they give us that option i i think the the way that they they describe even their own writings mm-hmm. as scripture mm-hmm. uh the way that they claim that scripture is given by the very breath of god himself um you know i just don't think they they give us the leeway to say well they're just these people were mistaken you know they're just using stories that were familiar to the to to people in that day i i I think we're bound to accept the the testimony of the apostles um written as they were carried along by the holy spirit um and that means i think that we just have to accept that just as they did that these accounts in genesis are historical that they really happened yeah uh yeah again i i agree so so we have both you know you put these start putting these pieces together and you start thinking yeah this is it's not just that we read the old testament in a particular way or that we read narratives in the old testament in a certain way it's that those narratives then get tied into the way the new testament authors explain and justify mm-hmm. doctrines and positions. Um, and it's in, at a very fine level of detail. Enoch is in a great example. There's, there's a reference to Genesis 5, which is just yeah. the genealogy, right? And so yeah. you, there's, there's, it's not just a matter of, you know, the first Adam mm-hmm. and trying to figure out, is he, is he some sort of tribal chief or something like that? Um, it, it's down to the very details of what the text actually says, and it happens over and over again. I got one more. This one is a bigger, uh, a bigger issue, and it's a little trickier, I think, um, because it involves prophecy. And as we know, prophecy is notoriously, well, full of full of vivid imagery. Let's put it that way. Um, not always clear how much of it is to be taken at face value and literally and how much of it is a vision that they saw, that the prophet saw and has written down for us. Uh, yeah, tricky. But Revelation, and I noticed this a couple of years ago, and I, and, I, and it's pretty well known among the scholars. And, uh, and yeah, I'm a little slow on this, but yeah, Revelation is absolutely full of references to the book of Genesis. It's specifically to the earliest chapters of Genesis. And some of those references are pretty subtle. They're kind of allusions or parallels. And other references are really quite explicit that you can hardly miss. So one of the subtle references that occurred to me, um, you notice when uh, the, the opening scene in Revelation is the scroll that that's that's sealed and can't be opened and and they they ask who is worthy to open the scroll and John looks and sees uh the lamb who was slain that comes forward to to open the scroll and so as he opens the scroll there are seven seals in the scroll um and when he gets to the seventh seal uh this is revelation 8 verse 1 when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, which I think is really interesting. Later on in Revelation, you have the trumpet sounds, the trumpet, the seven trumpets of judgment. And when the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11, everyone stops to worship God. Um, now, why is this significant? Well, because 
the seventh day of creation, what happens? God ceases from his work and rests, right? So you've got all this, all this stuff happening when this various seals of the scroll are opened and then you get to the seventh and everyone just stops and is quiet for a time. You have all the judgments happening with the seven trumpets and you get to the seventh trumpet and everyone stops to worship God. The seventh day of creation then sets the pattern for the Sabbath uh, and the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. And here we have the same pattern repeated here in the judgments that John is witnessing in heaven. And again, is, will there be some day when we are gathered around the throne watching this scroll being opened and these seals happening? I have no idea. I have no idea if this is meant to be literal or if this is some sort of vision that he's had. I do not know. But it's a fascinating parallel to what you see in the book of Genesis. Now, there are other places that are far more explicit. When you get to the final uh, end of Revelation, last couple of chapters there, we see the new heaven and the new earth descending from heaven. We see uh, there is no sea. The sea is gone. And there is no sun because Jesus is now the light. Um, and those two elements are specifically mentioned in the first three days of creation, right? You have the creation of the sun and you have the on day th- uh, four, sorry, not the first three days. Day four is the creation of the sun. And you have the creation of the deep, the, the waters uh, below on, they're gathered together below on day two. They're created on day one. Um, so those elements are omitted in this new creation, this new heaven and new earth. We see that there's a stream that comes out of the throne of God. Uh, and it reminds us of this, the, the river that flows out in Eden. We see there's a tree of life next to the new street in, in heaven, just like there was a tree of life. And that's a pretty explicit uh, reference to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Um, there's also it's specifically mentioned that there's nothing accursed in this new in this new heaven and new earth, which reminds us of the curse on Adam and Eve after their sin. Um, we see uh, John hears a voice from the throne that says, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people." That reminds us of God coming down as was his custom to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, in the Garden of Eden. So you have all of these details that, that are not, they're not um, put there by chance, right? It's not that John has just happened to describe this, this vision and it just happens to have all these intersecting details. That's not what's going on here. Now, again, I want to emphasize, this is, this is, this is a trickier bit of theology to understand. Um, because it's clearly related to John's prophetic visions and the entire book of Revelation. <laughs> it's all sorts of dragons that are chasing pregnant women to eat their children and eat her child and, and um, you know, stars fall out of heaven. And, you know, how much of this is meant to be absolutely literally true or not. So we have to be very careful how we think about this. But at the same time, you know, when you think about this as God's revelation to John, God is showing John things that are to come in these vivid visions that he's seeing. And he's choosing to explain the end, the glory, the final reunion here of God and his people in the same terms as he described creation in the beginning. Um, he's trying to get us to understand uh, what we're moving towards in terms of what we lost back in the original creation. If you want to know what our future with God is going to be like, God says, well, then go see how things were supposed to be in the original creation. That's how it's going to be. And that kind of analogy. I would say, again, sort of depends on people recognizing that that was how it was. Um, that if you want to understand the coming glorification at the, at the consummation of history, then you need to understand how God made the world in the first place and how we messed it up with our sin. 
So, yeah, I would see these connections here as not merely sort of literary references that John has put into this, into this text to make us think about these things. I would see this as being, well, God is, God, it's, it's the story of Christian redemption again, going back to what we said earlier, this, this creation, fall, redemption, glorification scheme is, is woven right into the, to the, to the text of Revelation. Now, yeah, I yeah, I think that's good enough. I think that's I think that says it all. I I don't want to get too far into this because there's plenty of reason to think you know you know are these allegorical details are these you know references intended to be understood in other ways that that's you know if you get too deep into this you start getting lost. I think the better way to understand it is Revelation. It's not just, it's another one of those big theological questions. Revelation is not just depicting the consummation of all things as, hey, we get to have a reunion with Jesus, but it is, hey, we're going to restore things the way creation originally was. And I think that's yeah. tremendously important. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, we've, we've covered quite a bit of ground, I think, in this sort of introductory episode, thinking about how, how do we read um genesis 1 to 11 and i think it would probably just just help if we sort of reviewed things you know as we as we begin to draw to a conclusion so i i think we've seen that you know we we are trying to read genesis 1 to 1 to 11 with sensitivity to non-literal writings that are present in the bible um you know we're not naive or wooden literalists um we are trying to be sensitive to all of the nuances. But nevertheless, you know, we still see that there is this very clear set of stories that are true, not only because they're part of inspired scripture, um, but because, at least on the face of it, as you read them, they, they don't appear to be written as though they're allegories or parables or myths. They appear to be written as the kinds of stories, the kinds of narratives that we read in other parts of scripture as well. Um, I think we've seen that uh, when we look at the beginnings um, in Genesis 1 to 11, that description of a perfect creation, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the curse of death that came upon the creation, um, we can't say that this is unimportant either because you know it's it's all um essential really to understanding to to how we explain that it, that whole storyline of christianity the whole sort of theological uh, you know timeline if you like uh, as as you've said you know that our theology is about that narrative going from creation to fall to redemption to glorification um and the beginnings are a crucial part of that. We can't we can't dispense with them. And then, of course, we've gone through a number of places in the New Testament, and I'm sure we haven't been exhaustive, where we see that the authors of the New Testament are directly citing the characters, the events of Genesis one to eleven, as though they were historical, um, and in contexts in which those citations don't make sense if they if they're not historical you know the historicity is essential to the point that's being made in, in those passages in the new testament and then of course you you know as you, as you've just explained um we have the book of revelation that describes what's going to happen in the future in terms of the past in terms of you know genesis 1 to 2 it's kind of the counterpoint it's like the bookends, isn't it? Either end of the biblical story. Um, and we have these abundant passages throughout the New Testament, again, that link what's going to happen in the future, that new heavens and new earth, with what happened in the beginning, the restoration of all things, uh, as, as the New Testament says, I think, in the book of Acts. So I think, you know, we can be confident when we look at, you know, all of these different aspects that, uh, what we're reading there in the early chapters of Genesis re really is historical. 
And I, I hope that, you know, as we've tried to sort of unpack that a bit, that people can see that our approach to the text is more nuanced, more complex, more thoughtful than simply we take the Bible literally, we take every word literally. Um, we're trying to understand these texts in a way that is deeply rooted in Christian theology, uh, in a story that goes back to the apostles, um, you know, and their reading of of Genesis, and then even further back than than the apostles. Um, so, so it's it's deep, but I think it's also broad. It's broadly connected to the whole sweep of redemptive history, and interesting sort of concept here that we can sort of bring in which is this concept comes from philosophy the concept of consilience we sometimes use that word in science to talk about the way in which a theory explains a broad range of data and i think here we have a kind of theological consilience uh we can see that um our approach to reading genesis in this way um helps to explain and connect many different aspects of scripture many different parts of scripture um so you know we it helps to explain that big picture of god's redemption of the world it connects with what we believe about the inspiration and the authority of the bible as as god's word uh it connects to what we read in the new testament the words of jesus the words of the apostles it connects to what we read in revelation about our future hope you know, that anticipation of a new creation to come. So I think we'd want to say that this is a consilient way to understand Genesis 1 to 11. Um, and I think, you know, if you want to interpret Genesis 1 to 11 in a more allegorical way, figurative way, then that's going to have an effect on so many other aspects of your theology uh you know you can't simply reevaluate genesis 1 to 11 without having kind of knock on effects ripple effects on other parts of your your theology so it, it's not so much that you know if we if we reevaluate genesis 1 to 11 that we'd have to completely throw out everything that christians believe but i think your your understanding of Christian theology is going to be radically different uh, if you reinterpret Genesis 1 to 11 in that sort of allegorical or figurative way. Your, your theology is going to end up looking, you're, you're not going to be able to hang on to some of the traditional ways of understanding your theology. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to think again about those things. And I think we see that. Um, you know, people who are reevaluating genesis are saying well now we have to rethink other things too um and and i think that's the inevitable consequence of uh, you know of doing that so i guess todd that that's that's a good place to sort of wrap up this episode that in i suppose in a in one episode is why we are young age creationists yeah. why we read genesis the way that we we do yeah. at the very least the, uh, sort of the biblical theological dimension there that, that sort of drives yes. us right yes there's, there's more to the story of course of course of course and i guess we'll we'll come back to that so i hope that's been helpful um to to sort of give an introduction to how we approach these things um and uh, we will come back to to these uh, questions as we continue this series kind of creationism 101 uh, as we get back to basics so okay well um i don't know what's coming next um we'll be back in a couple of weeks again don't forget to uh, subscribe like and share our episodes leave us a review if uh, you're listening to us on one of your favorite podcast streaming platforms that that's a great help to us and uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks time See you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Creation. For more information, visit us at letstalkcreation.org, where you'll find an archive of past episodes and all our show notes. If you'd like to leave a comment or make a suggestion, you can find us on all the major social media platforms. Let's Talk Creation is brought to you in the U.S. by Core Academy of Science, 
and in the UK by Biblical Creation Trust. As a listener-supported ministry, we are grateful for all of your financial support. Find out how you can make a contribution at our website, letstalkcreation.org. Also remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Thanks, and see you next time 